From VT Digger, I'm Mike Doherty. This is The Deeper Dig. This week, Vermont's primary election is August 11th. And whether you're voting by mail or in person, this year's ballots are full of competitive races, including challenges to incumbent Governor Phil Scott in a crowded field for the open lieutenant governor's seat. I sat down with VT Digger's politics team to find out what they'll be watching when the results come in. Hello. Hey. I'm here. Kit, uh, you put on your suit. I know. I should have put on a tie, too, for just audio recording. We take this very seriously. We do take this very seriously. Could we go around the Zoom here and uh, have each of you introduce yourselves? I'm Grace Ellison, and I'm part of Digger's politics team. Kit Norton covers state house and uh, statewide races in Congress. I'm Xander Landon. I cover statewide politics, the state house, and all of these political campaigns that are going on. How are you guys feeling? It's primary season. It's busy. It's a weird primary season because of the pandemic. How is it changing things? I mean, the thing that I've said is how this is really bizarre because as opposed to other times, this is really being fought in the trenches of Zoom calls so far and not kind of your normal trench warfare that you're, you're normally seeing um, out in terms of normal campaigning. Yeah, it's been unusual, but there's still a lot of uh, really interesting races happening. We're going to try to break them down. Let's start at the top of the ticket. Xander, as you've been following, one of the main challengers to Governor Phil Scott is Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman. What do folks need to know about Zuckerman's run? So Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman is one of the most sort of progressive, high-profile politicians in the state. He has, over the years, sort of styled himself in the image of Bernie Sanders and has, you know, sort of made a name for himself as someone who has pushed for policies, including um, the labeling of GMOs on food products. He was responsible really for um, getting enough momentum to pass that law in Vermont quite a few years ago now. He has pushed for policies like marijuana legalization, minimum wage increases, paid family leave programs. So over the years, that's sort of what he's been known for. He's also got quite a large uh, name recognition throughout the state. He is facing off against Rebecca Holcomb, who used to work for Governor Phil Scott, as well as Governor Peter Shumlin as education secretary, overseeing the agency of education. And during her time, a lot of big changes were happening in the education world, including Act 46, which is the school merger law that has resulted in a lot of school consolidation over the last five years, and also left the Scott administration over some major disagreements, particularly on education funding and differences with the Scott administration over that. So right now it's a race between really, you know, there are a couple of other Democrats who are running uh, in the primary, but right now the, 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 the sort of race between Democrats is really being fought, you know, primarily between Holcomb and Zuckerman. Those are the main contenders. In terms of both of their campaigns, what are they campaigning on in terms of talking about why they should be governor of Vermont? So there's some some basic sort of similarities between the two of them. Both of them say that they would do things that Phil Scott has opposed or that Phil Scott won't do. So they both want to raise the minimum wage. They both want to implement paid family leave. Uh, Those are both policies that the governor vetoed. They both want to do things like lower health care costs, expand broadband throughout the state and uh, invest in affordable housing. The main difference between the two candidates is that Zuckerman 
as a progressive is much more comfortable talking about and putting proposals forward to raise taxes, particularly raise taxes on the wealthy. Holcomb is very reluctant and avoids talking about raising new revenues. Uh, instead, she's talking a lot about finding efficiencies within state government, you know, make use of the dollars that the state already has at its disposal. We see some differences on health care policy. We see some differences on things like climate change, uh, where Zuckerman says he wants to raise a tax on the wealthy to fund climate change initiatives and build out the renewable energy sector. Holcomb is talking more about using federal money for that purpose. And then, you know, Holcomb is touting her executive experience. She says, I've had experience running a state agency. I know how to, you know, manage people, how to manage state government, and how to propose and build uh, a budget, um, which is obviously a big, important part of being governor of the state. You know, Zuckerman's sort of relying on a lot of his legislative experience, his experience pushing for these big policies. Holcomb is touting her executive experience. Governor Phil Scott also has a challenger on the Republican side uh, for folks who are going to be voting in the Republican primary. Tell me about John Clark. Yeah, so John Clark is a farmer from Brookfield. He has worked throughout his life as an attorney. He's not originally from Vermont, although he has family ties here. His, his family goes back generations as farmers uh, in the state on his mother's side. Before he came to Vermont in the late 1990s, he was a, an attorney in Connecticut. Um, he spent a lot of time doing criminal defense work. Since he's come to Vermont, he's actually also been a pastor, um, been focused on farming. And, you know, his sort of challenge against the incumbent governor is focused on the idea that Phil Scott has abandoned conservative Republicans in the state. And so he is making the argument that by doing things like supporting the gun control legislation that he did in 2018, and by supporting abortion legislation in 2019, that he has abandoned or isolated conservatives who are very willing now, he says, to vote for an alternative to Phil Scott. Now, we've seen this argument made before. Keith Stern, who was a political sort of newcomer in 2018, challenged Scott um, on the gun control issue. He ran basically as a Second Amendment activist. That didn't work out too well for him. He got about 30% of the vote and Phil Scott got 70%. So I think that there are a lot of people who are really skeptical that John Clark is going to be able to get enough support this time around, especially since he's never held elected office and he's really a newcomer. It's going to be hard for anyone to beat Phil Scott, uh, Republican or Democrat, during this pandemic. Scott has overseen uh, the state's response to COVID-19. We have one of the lowest infection rates in the country. He had a very large approval rating before COVID-19 happened, and all indications are that it's only increased uh, given his leadership during this time, which has largely received bipartisan acclaim. So a lot of people are saying that during a time of crisis is not an easy time to unseat an incumbent. And I think in the case of Phil Scott in this governor's race, that certainly is a true statement. Got it. Let's move on to the lieutenant governor race. There are a lot of people on the ticket here. I know, Grace, you and Kit have both uh, spent some time with all of these candidates. Let's start with Molly Gray. What is she campaigning on to become lieutenant governor? Yeah, Molly Gray is a really interesting figure in this race because she is a political newcomer. She hasn't run for office before, but she's getting a lot of support from the political establishment. She's uh, raising a ton of money. She's brought in close to $200,000, if not $200,000 at this point, 
to fund her campaign. And in large part, that's because she's always been around politics if she hasn't been in it directly herself. When she graduated from UVM in 2006, she immediately started working on Peter Welch's campaign to get him elected to Congress. She then followed him to DC, worked for him for a few years, continued her work uh, working for the Red Cross, bringing congressmen and women to trips around the world to experience what it's like in detention centers to advocate, you know, on, on behalf of detainees. And then, of course, she has, she went to law school in Vermont. She has international human rights law experience. So she's always been around politics. And this is her making the jump to really get into it. And so, you know, she has this in a way, almost two conflicting brands here. She's very much pushing the narrative that she's a Vermonter, which she is. She grew up in Newberry. She was born on a Newberry farm, Four Corners Farm is her family farm. And it's very clear she cares very much about a, a revival for Vermont. You know, she does have a keen interest in rural Vermont, which is um, maybe differentiating her from some other candidates who have a more urban focus or urban appeal. But at the same time, she has this international human rights law experience and political experience. So I think she has, again, like I said, attracted the political establishment behind her. She's been endorsed by former governors Peter Shumlin and Madeleine Kunin. She's gaining traction. And, and that's also, you know, getting her some criticism as well from Tim Ash. Her and her and Tim have, have sparred publicly. There's been conversations around her residency here. In order to run for lieutenant governor, you have had to be in the state, be living in the state for four years. And because Molly had been doing international human rights work, in Geneva, Switzerland, before she became assistant attorney general in the criminal division in 2018, it kind of created this gray area. So that's been a conversation. Got it. And you said that her main rival so far, it seems, has been Tim Ash, the current uh, president pro tem of the Senate. Uh, Kit, you spent some time with Ash talking about why he wants to be lieutenant governor. What did he tell you? So Ash is really running on his history in the legislature. He's been there for uh, over a decade, uh, four years as the Senate pro tem, the leader of, of the Vermont Senate. And he's really running on that record. Uh, that record is one which he, he, he claims in which, you know, he's passed minimum wage proposals, paid leave proposals multiple times. However, they've been met with vetoes from the governor both times. And so this is the real crux of what he's running on. And then uh, he's also running on his, his work as an organizer early on in his career. But it's really about he is someone who's been in the, in the legislature for over a decade. He was the one who has been helping lead the state house's response to the COVID-19 uh, crisis and an economic fallout from the pandemic. And that uh, he is running to go into the lieutenant governor's office, continue that work uh, for the next uh, two years. Got it. And so those two have, uh, you know, received a, a great deal of attention. They've raised the most money of all the contenders in this race. But uh, there are many other candidates. Grace, one of those candidates is Brenda Siegel. You spent some time with her talking about her campaign. What is she in the race for right now? The real push behind her campaign is her message that she wants to bring more marginalized voices to the state house. 
as someone herself who has experienced what it's like to be a single mother, to be a low income single mother, she has said that it's very difficult to navigate political systems and to figure out how to make your voice heard. And she spent a good amount of time figuring out how to navigate the state house um, in order to advocate for policies that she's particularly passionate about. That's how she views the lieutenant governor position as, as kind of a microphone for others. You know, she's been described, or at least one person I spoke with described her as the female Bernie Sanders, you know, uncompromising sometimes to a fault, very progressive minded, but on the point of uncompromising to a fault, I mean, that's, she, she is very principled in, in what she believes and, and ensuring that those principles and the policies informed by those principles make their way through. So, I mean, there is a bit of a, a, a worry here that because this lieutenant governor's seat does not have any policy strings attached to it. You really don't have that much control over policy in this position. You know, would she be able to kind of rein in the activist side of her to, to come into this position? Got it. And there's one other major candidate uh, on the Democratic side, uh, Debbie Ingram. She's in the state Senate. Kit, what can you tell us about Ingram's campaign for lieutenant governor? Yeah, Senator Ingram, she's also a, an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. And she, again, is running on a bit of a platform that's it has a different facets to it. On one hand, she's running on her record of four years in Vermont Senate on really pushing for criminal and racial justice reform. She has long been an advocate for some of the uh, police reform proposals, which at the end of this legislative session before the pause, before they return, uh, in which some of these police reforms were passed. Um, so she's running on that aspect of her record. And then also as... Um, being a uh, member of the LGBTQ community, um, being able to be in the lieutenant governor's office, work as a role model, and also as simply just being a woman in that position of power. So those are the two kind of aspects that she's running on. Got it. So those are our Democratic candidates. We've got Molly Gray, Tim Ash, Brenda Siegel, Debbie Ingram. Over on the Republican side, there are a couple of uh, folks who are on the ticket uh, if folks are filling out a Republican ballot here. Let's talk a little bit about what people need to know about uh, some of these candidates. Grace, you spent some time with Meg Hansen, who is running as a Republican. What's her campaign all about? Yeah, so Meg is running on a pro-freedom, pro-prosperity platform. Her message is that Vermont has become too unaffordable for the lower-income or middle-income Vermonter. She has serious concerns about business being able to prosper in Vermont, given its reputation for high property taxes and regulations that may make it hard for businesses to establish themselves here. She really wants to encourage and advocate for, in her position, deregulation and lowering taxes to spur economic growth. She has a show on a, a, a local public broadcast network, YCN, called Dialogues with Meg Hansen. So, I mean, she has credibility in the sense that she has spoken with Vermonters um, across the state to hear about their frustrations on certain political issues, uh, social issues. So, you know, what she wants to do in this position is, is amplify what she's already been hearing in the context of her concerns. Scott Milne is the other major candidate on the Republican side here. Kit, Tell us, what is Milne's candidacy about? 
So Milne, who is probably best known uh, for being uh, the president of the travel agency Milne Travel, he uh, is really, again, running on being a Phil Scott-like Republican. And in fact, it all points towards that if he is successful in the primary, he and uh, Governor Scott uh, would be running as basically a ticket. The governor has basically endorsed Scott Milne, as have um, a handful, quite a few uh, Republican lawmakers. However, what Milne is running on is someone who has had uh, success in statewide uh, contests before, going back to 2014, when he came very, very close to unseating incumbent Democratic governor, uh, Peter Shumlin. Uh, and then he also had a, a run against, or as he calls it, a kamikaze uh, mission against um, Patrick Leahy in 2016, in which he only got uh, 30%, just around 30% of the vote. However, he would say that that's still better than, say, 20%, and that that points towards real viability on uh, in a statewide race. Grace, earlier you alluded to the fact that the lieutenant governor role doesn't really have a direct role in setting policy, uh, and yet it seems like there are a lot of candidates who are vying for this office. Why? What's in it for all these uh, various politicians who want to become lieutenant governor? Right. So I think it's, I mean, first of all, it's a competitive race because the incumbent is running for governor. So the fact that there's a space opening up makes it competitive in itself. You know, I think there's the question here as well, that the position of lieutenant governor could be a springboard for further political ambitions. You know, there's a bit of a history in Vermont for uh, former lieutenant governors to try to run for higher offices, David Zuckerman is doing right now. All of these candidates, it's very interesting to hear, and I would encourage voters to uh, scrutinize the vision these candidates have for this office, for lieutenant governor. What specifically do they want to do with it? Why is this specific seat important to them? Because it is kind of like the vice presidency of, of Vermont. Really, the role of the lieutenant governor is to, you know, be connecting with voters, hear about, you know, what people are concerned about and advocate for the issues that that they care about. And, and so each candidate is going to have their own personalized brand for how they're going to do that. And it's up to it's really up to the voters to choose which style most appeals to them and, and which candidate they think is going to be the most effective in kind of this advocacy role. Got it. Xander, Kit, any other ideas about why this is such a competitive race this year? I think that the most interesting thing about this race is the sort of competition between Ash and Molly Gray on the Democratic side, because you have someone who, you know, you could argue is in some ways by the virtue of their position as Senate president and establishment, quote unquote, Vermont uh, politician. But by the same token, you have the Democratic establishment coalescing around Molly Gray, who is basically a newcomer. I mean, she's never held public office before. At the same time, from the get-go, her candidacy was embraced and advanced by by a lot of uh, the Democratic establishment. Yeah. And if I can just add to that a little bit as well, I mean, something that we shouldn't overlook here is that um, Molly is a woman and Vermont has never sent a woman to Congress. Uh, and I think, you know, and others have hypothesized that this could be why the Democratic establishment is kind of, like Xander said, coalescing around her. You know, there are, there are two other women in this race, Debbie and, and Brenda. However, I think, you know, you, you can't overlook the fact that, that Molly has um, a perspective here that 
that some Vermonters may be looking for in the future of their politics. Got it. So there are also legislative races across the state this year. I want to just spend a minute touching on what to watch in terms of legislative races and uh, what's at stake for the coming legislative session uh, in terms of how these races shake out. What races are you guys watching? I would say first, uh, you know, there's, which is kind of the way of it, a lot of the interesting races are, are in Chittenden County, whether they be on the House side or the Chittenden County Senate race, uh, where there is quite a few candidates running. Specifically on the Senate um, race in Chittenden County, you, there's quite a few folks running because there are two open seats because of uh, Senator Ash and Senator Ingram's decision to seek uh, lieutenant governorship. So you have some very, very uh, qualified candidates uh, running for that, including Keisha Rahm, who served in the Vermont House in the past. You have uh, David Sherry, who's an assistant attorney general. You have uh, Representative Dylan Giambattista, who just is off of uh, a term, multiple terms in the Vermont House. And you have other candidates, including Adam Roof, who's a Burlington City Councilwoman, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, you have a lot of candidates there, which should be an interesting race. And there's the potential possibility that um, one of the uh, four remaining incumbents could actually lose their seat, though that remains to be seen, but there is that potential there. Uh, You also have um, some open seats in Chittenden County on the House side, which have made for some interesting races. Um, And then you also have some in other parts of the state, including in um, uh, the Northeast Kingdom and down south in Manchester, where again, these are open seats, which have brought out Democratic candidates here vying in the primaries. Yeah, and so speaking of one of those um, Chittenden County races that is um, has some historical significance to it. Uh, so Taylor Small is running for um, Deanna Gonzalez's open seat in Winneski. And uh, Taylor is openly transgender woman. And um, if she were to be elected, she would be Vermont's first openly transgender lawmaker. And um, the reason why we're watching this race specifically, I mean, there, there are two other openly transgender women currently running for races in different areas of the state. Um, Ember Quinn is taking on two Republican incumbents in Milton, and Jamie DeFore is campaigning for a Manchester seat against two other Democrats in, in, a, in an attempt to take Cynthia Browning's seat. Those two other candidates have a bit more of an uphill battle here. Taylor Small is uh, running for this open seat against one other Democrat, um, Jordan Matt. And so she's gotten a lot of endorsements. She's gotten some national endorsements. Um, Christine Halquist, who is also an openly transgender woman who ran for governor in 2018, she has endorsed Taylor. And so Taylor has also gotten Deanna Gonzalez's endorsement here. So she has a really good shot uh, of becoming Vermont's first openly transgender uh, lawmaker. Got it. At this point, from when we're having this conversation, we're about a week and a half away from the primary. Anything else that you feel like voters need to know before uh, they either send their ballots back, drop their ballots off at their town clerk's office, or uh, head in person to vote? Well, the only thing I would add is that I think uh, one thing to keep in mind about this primary election is how voters are going to be casting their ballots, which uh, it seems at this point, the majority or the vast majority are going to be sending ballots back through the mail. Um, There's been a huge effort on the Secretary of State's part to encourage and make it as easy as possible for people to vote by mail. And the numbers at this point, I think as of a couple days ago, uh, there had been 130,000 Vermonters who had requested 
absentee ballots. So that number in and of itself is larger than the primary turnout in 2018, which was about 107,000 people. So you could, assuming that most of the people that request the ballots send them back, easily surpass turnout in 2018 and have a record turnout in this primary. To what extent is that going to impact this race? I'm not sure. But the fact that you have more people at home, more people, you know, maybe maybe tuning in or, or reading the news than usual, I'm not sure. Maybe you're going to have a little more participation than you normally would because of the pandemic. And I wonder too how that bodes long-term for if we have a really successful vote by mail primary on the way we vote in the future. Absolutely. I mean, there are five states where the Secretary of State's office will send everyone a ballot by mail every year, and that's always an option for voters. I could easily see a push if this is successful to have a more entrenched uh, vote by mail system like those other states. Wow. Well, Grace, Xander, Kit, thank you guys so much for getting on and uh, giving us the rundown of uh, what people need to know for the primary. You bet. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Anytime. vtdigger.org slash elections. That's where you'll find VT Digger's 2020 voter guide. This year, we polled our readers on what issues were most important to them. And then we asked every candidate for statewide and legislative office to tell us where they stand. You can find their answers, along with in-depth profiles of the major candidates, plus videos, campaign finance data, instructions on how to vote, and lots more. The address again is vtdigger.org elections. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We use music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We're taking a brief hiatus heading into the primary, but we'll be back in August with more stories from the Digger newsroom. Have a nice week.